and welcome to episode six of the Cloud Spotting Podcast. Um, we are here with uh, myself, as usual, Alex Galbraith, um, and we're here with Sai. Sai, how are Hello you everybody. Been? Hey, I'm doing good. Been an interesting week this week. What uh, have you been up to? Not much. A few designs with customers, a few completely dis- disparate designs, I should say. All right, completely okay. different ones. I had a conversation with a customer about blockchain technologies and using hyperledges, oh, cool. which is very interesting. And another one, which was pure Azure. Oh, okay. Every day's a school day. Every day's a school day, indeed. <laughs> Had to learn again. What about you, Alex? Um, last couple of weeks, I've been um, attending a few events. So I went to the London VMware User Group last week. Oh, yeah. Um, attended a session about, well, one that particularly jumped out was about Kubernetes. So, you know, the, the word of the, the word of the hour. <laughs> We've got to get it in every episode, but not the big actually K. about it, I think. Oh, is it a special K? No, I don't special know. Special K. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was a Google Partner Day as well. So, again, kind of a bit of a Kubernetes focus there as well. Really, really cool. interesting stuff. Um, just as a, a little bit of extra news as well, um, for those of you who are members of the Twitterati, um, we now have a proper Twitter account, which Woo-hoo! is at Spotting Clouds. So if you want to follow yep. us, give us a shout there. Um, and on top of that, we also have um, a new website, which is go.rackspace.com forward slash cloudspotting. Um, so have a look there. You can give us some feedback. You can submit a form via there if you want to kind of get in touch with the show. Um, yeah, um, yep. but more to the point... We also have a guest today, don't we? We do, we do. So, so guys, we are into our dev series. This is uh, the second episode of of the dev series, and uh, we go deeper into the world of DevOps, the mysterious world of DevOps. All the things of DevOps. <laughs> All the things of DevOps. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about more about DevOps. We're gonna talk about CI/CD, the whole buzzwords things, and we have our guest Iskander. Uh, you probably know him from the webinar, uh, which we will put the link to in the show notes. Uh, but nevertheless, Iskander, can you give us a minute of your background? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, really nice to be here. My name is Iskander. I head our DevOps team for EMEA at Rackspace. I've been at Rackspace for about three years. Before I joined Rackspace, I was technical co-founder for several development agencies. So most of my career has been doing web application development across cloud platforms um, and working with really high traffic, spiky traffic, um, fast execution for big brands. Proper web scale. Yes. Well, ish, right? This, you know, I started back in the early 2000s, so web scale wasn't the thing then. It was just, <laughs> please don't let my servers melt, was, was, was the request. So, you know, uh, things have changed a lot since then, oh, of course. Absolutely. All for the better, mostly. So, really? um, just, to, just to kind of, uh, for those, you know, 12 people in the world who now don't, you know, haven't heard the term DevOps. <laughs> First of all, welcome. <laughs> welcome to somehow you found this podcast. Congratulations. <laughs> so just as a quick refresher for those people, um, what, you know, what is DevOps? Uh, why do we need it? You know, what are we, what are we actually solving for with DevOps? Yeah, I think there's probably two ways to discuss the term DevOps. The first one that we focus on is that it's just kind of a, a banner. It's a flag you can wave mm-hmm. that has certain meanings associated with it. Usually those meanings are all about trying to work better, trying to do things smarter and not harder, trying to solve problems from the source. Um, 
trying to be more creative at solving common technical challenges. All of those challenges are related to usually some kind of running environment or some process of, of managing changes for applications running in, in, on some resources. So the first one is it's a flag you can wave. Mm -hmm. When you wave it, most people will start out knowing a little bit about what you mean. You're not talking about old-fashioned change management. It's something right. else. Okay. The second way we like to think about it is that it's basically a set of tools and approaches and a way of thinking about dealing with change to those environments. Right? And the, the fundamental properties of the way you think about those, the, the, the change management is mostly around, let's be leaner, let's have faster processes, let's be streamlined, let's use automation. Let's try and take out a bunch of human, human elements and potential for error and try and treat our application pipelines and our change management as software artifacts more than right. a human process. We're saying humans bad, automation good. Well, always. to a certain extent, it's true, right? If automation fails, it's going to fail always the same time, the same way. Mm -hmm. And if you fix it once, you fixed it for everything. Whereas when humans fail, we kind of fail in weird, unpredictable <laughs> ways. My finger slipped, or I didn't read the right document, mm -hmm. or I, I didn't have enough coffee that morning. Those are all unpredictable and or hard to I got to my coffee on down. the wrong floor of the building. Yes. Some floors are better. This Just is saying. true. Just saying. Yes, we've learned uh, that <laughs> we found a good coffee machine in the building. For those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, <laughs> it's quite good. Thank you. Um, so the, the good point is it's not purely about automating everything, but clearly there are things that we want to do in an automated fashion in a cloud environment mm -hmm. where lots of things are hands off. If you're taking advantage of the elastic properties of some cloud platforms and automatically creating new resources where there were none before, those new resources need to be configured and managed somehow. And that's not yep. manually. Um, so those are the things we try to think about when we, when we talk about DevOps. It's not, not necessarily prescriptive. It's more about shaping your way of thinking and applying uh, some basic principles to how you tackle problems. Right. And yeah. it's, it's not just, I'm, I'm guessing it's not like a very small set of prescribed tools. I'm guessing this is a massive toolbox we're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, the way our team works and the way we like to talk to customers is that it's not so much about the underlying technology. It's mm -hmm. about what are the roles and responsibilities within a bigger architecture. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's different levels of architecture. What I mean when I say architecture is the architecture for managing how you introduce application level change, how you introduce infrastructure level change, the architecture for dealing with that. Cool. Um, so. Absolutely. And, and obviously, I'm guessing when you talk about DevOps, again, there's, there's a whole, it, it depends on the, the other person listening in terms of where you actually apply DevOps. I'm guessing there's, there's DevOps infrastructure where you're starting to use uh, automation like Alex mentioned earlier, but also there's a DevOps way of working. I guess uh, something like an agile development model. Which, Cultural thing yeah. rather than a, a specific, specific set of technology exactly. tools, et cetera. You exactly. Know, a lot of people do mention the cultural side, and it's important to, to, to highlight it because it, it is a consideration when you're thinking about changing how you work. But the really, the most important cultural aspect is that there is an acceptance across multiple teams inside the business mm -hmm. that everyone is sharing responsibility for a certain system or a certain set of systems or certain outcomes. That's the key fundamental cultural shift. Mm -hmm. The opposite being, I'm in one team, I only care about these particular KPIs, Right. the other things I don't really care so much about, so therefore I'm not sharing the responsibility. 
I think that's the only the only really important cultural note. And clearly, there's lots of work to do inside many organizations to to f- figure out how to structure those teams in a way that makes sense, where they can practically right. share those goals. Mm. And that's a, that's a good point, actually, because I was thinking, if we sort of let's let's zoom out a bit and we look at it from a from a business and a technology perspective. So you got your DevOps flag, your DevOps workflow methodology, whatever you want to call it, as from a tech perspective. Uh, you mentioned different teams, so that's, that works really well. There are different teams that, that are working on their own specific pieces of the puzzle. I'm guessing there has to be some kind of a vision that they're working towards, some kind of a, uh, some end goal. So from in your experience, when you're talking to customers about it, how do they sort of work that vision out? Is it more from a business needs perspective or is it more from an application perspective? How do you sort of reach that point or essentially how do you work through it? Yeah, so that's a really good question because there's lots of companies and lots of people we talk to who are already doing a bunch of work. They've got people on the yep. ground. They're delivering different pieces of, of application functionality or they're delivering pipelines for making changes. But often those individual chunks don't become part of a bigger picture. And there's mm. there are questions around, well, it's yep. all purely tactical. There is no strategic longer-term goal, which usually means from an architecture perspective, the stuff that was built... Yep. is only fit for certain purposes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And 12 months later, when you say, oh, guess what? All of the f- things we've built need to be PCI compliant, let's say. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Everything explodes and you have to start yeah. from scratch. Um, so I think having a shared vision of what good looks like is absolutely essential before you start undertaking the actual work. So you're saying you, sh- you shouldn't be doing DevOps in a bubble because you've heard it's cool and so your team is going to adopt it because it's just not going to work. Nope. It has to be a... Uh, an agreed adoption and an agreed strategic direction for an organization for the right business reason and the right end state as to why you're doing it you know whether it be uh, accelerate time to market for your applications or feature sets or whatever it is that you need to do uh, as your business not because actually this devops thing sounds quite cool and it might fix some of our problems absolutely yeah, if you're in, if you're engaging on on that lower level without the overall plan, I think it's true for any technical activity. You true. might get some good short-term results, but long-term it's not going to stick and it might be the type of change that has to be rolled back and redone, in which case all the time you've invested into it doesn't give you the value you want. So we, we work with customers a lot to help them define what does that vision look like. Mm-hmm. And it combines a lot of different disciplines. It's not just around a CI/CD pipeline, how do we build and deploy applications, but there's also lots of consideration around how do we secure all the sort of VM OSs that are running in a cloud environment? How do we deal with the actual infrastructure itself and have consistency between our staging and our UAT and our production environments? Those are all really good problem areas that some of the things that we deliver through our DevOps approach can can help solve. So... I'm going to jump ahead to another thing that I wanted to cover very briefly because you mentioned a few quite interesting terms there, right? So CI/CD pipelines is an example. I think uh, with the whole DevOps culture, it's also introduced a whole new set of languages or, or yeah. a, you know a new set of terminology. 
that we're all starting to get used to in the industry. Indeed. Um, CICD is one example, maybe blue green, you know, you hear a lot of people are referring to that. Can you just talk us through, just so it gives a bit more context for the rest of the uh, today, what, what are some of these terms and can you just go into a little bit of detail on what they actually mean? Sure. So let's start with the CICD pair, which is often separated by slash. And it's not CDCI. It's not CDCI <laughs> uh, that I've seen. <laughs> maybe if you come from a culture where you do things from right to left, it would be. Oh, yeah, probably. Um, so CI in this instance stands for continuous integration. And there's a couple of assumptions behind the scenes here, which maybe sometimes people miss. The assumption for continuous integration is that you have a bunch of different people doing work on a shared code base, some kind of source code. Mm-hmm. Doesn't It could be application-specific, could be infrastructure-specific, could be automation source code. We're not differentiating at this point. Bunch of people working on different branches of that source code. You've got your version, Alex. Sai, you've got a different version. I got my own version. And through our daily work, we're testing our versions, and we're going to be happy with it. The continuous integration system first evolved as a way of checking all of our changes at one after they've been pushed together and merged together, because that's not something people would necessarily do on their own. Mm. So that was the reason it's called integration. Everybody's changes, and take the three of us talking, and multiple at times a hundred across ten different offices globally, you see there's a problem there, yeah. right? So that's the first thing. That's why it's called integration. The idea of it being continuous, and the continuous is a very common phrase you'll hear when talking about DevOps approaches. It's continuous because every single change we make to that code base is going to go through a process of being tested, having this the source code built into something, and having it stored as an artifact normally. Right. And that's something that's done without our intervention. There is no human step needed. Um, this gives us a, a repository or a an archive set of a bunch of artifacts of all of our all the changes we've made that we can then pass on to the next C, continuous piece. Mm-hmm. So that's the CI piece. Uh, and really one of the key values to highlight that businesses get from having that continuous integration system is getting early feedback. Is, fa- is, is shifting left and failing a bit fast. If I produce a bug in code, which believe me, I do all the time and <laughs> I always will, it's, I'm human, I will, and it goes through into the continuous integration system, which runs a test mm. and catches my bug, that's a great result because it's yep. going to take me five minutes to fix. Okay. If, however, that bug went all the way through into production and sat there for six months... Fixing that bug now becomes a bit of a costly effort. I might oh, three yeah. people, we might take two weeks, and meanwhile, we're losing 10% of our transactions, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So important to note, the first place that we often see customers get value out of that shift-left methodology mm-hmm. is in that continuous integration system. So there okay. Again, another another one of these terms that people need to kind of get in their heads, the shift-left mentality. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's, it's just a nice way of summarizing the, the kind of common sense principle that the earlier, earlier you find and fix a problem, the cheaper it is. Mm. Right? It's better to fix the problems with your car's brake system in the in the design phase <laughs> than have to recall a million yeah. cars, right? Mm-hmm. Indeed. It's, it's just true in life, not just technology. <laughs> um, so our continuous integration system is building these artifacts. It's capturing all the change. It's testing to make sure that my bugs get fixed. Mm-hmm. While your guys, I'm sure, code is going to be brilliant. Perfect. So, yeah, oh, perfect. And then the, the, the next stage is that continuous deployment system. So CICD, continuous right. integration, continuous deployment. That continuous deployment system is a key use of automation to take those artifacts, whatever they are, 
usually application, but they could be infrastructure or, or configuration management, take those and deploy them into the right system. Right. And the right system could be the dev test environment, it could be the UAT environment, it could go all the way to the right-hand side, which is where we consider production to be. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of having that automated is that usually that deployment can be hard. There can be dependencies, there can be downtime, mm -hmm. there can be stress. So the more you automate those hard things and practice them, the easier they're going to be when you run them in production. Yeah. Multiple cycles give you better results. Yeah. So that's CICD. So it starts with source code changes by a team of people collaborating, and it ends with something being automatically deployed into an environment. And the whole thing end to end, there's one other buzzword to throw into the mix, just to make sure for those of you who aren't confused yet, you will be now. <laughs> continuous delivery is another CD, not to be confused with continuous deployment. Continuous delivery refers to the whole process. And the usual rule of thumb to establish if you're doing continuous delivery is, is there an environment you can deploy to automatically? Again, could be staging, that end to end takes 10 minutes or less. Right. If you're doing that, you can probably say with good confidence you are doing continuous delivery. It doesn't have to be production. Okay, so the, and that's 10 minutes or less as a, as a kind of a, a rule of thumb for that, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're running that 100 times a day. Correct. Exactly. Not necessarily. It could yeah. be specific branches. You could have another process behind it. Uh, ideally, you are running it as much as you possibly can because that's how you find and fix the problems. Yep. We the just more need to you write the code faster, is what we're saying. That's all so it is. Yeah, side so speed up, please. <laughs> <laughs> if only we had biscuits to help me. But anyhow. <laughs> so the other thing that we mentioned earlier on uh, was around blue green. So this is something that I have fairly regular conversations with customers around um, as a new way of deploying their applications and mm -hmm. testing and so forth. So can you just run through a little bit about what does that involve and, and what impact does it have around the application itself? You know, are there any considerations when you're developing towards this as, a, as an end state? Yeah, so the idea of a blue-green deployment, which essentially can be defined as saying there are two identical environments, one of them running the old version of the thing and one of them running the new version of the thing. And the deploy activity is to switch traffic over from the old to the new. And the uh, you've got a whole new version of app running in, in one go. And it came about because there were requirements from customers to say, we want that deployment to be instant and instant shift. We don't want to have necessarily two versions of our workloads running side by side at the same time. And there's also another requirement which is in there, which is for rolling back changes, if the deployment fails, we find that the new version of the thing has problems. We want to be able to very quickly and trivially roll back to the previous version. Mm -hmm. So blue-green deployment means I've got two different versions of my environment. I've got, uh, they are identical aside from the version of code running on them. Um, and if I do want to do the deployment, I can just pull a switch and start routing traffic to the new version. And so it solves those problems pretty well. In the same location or might they be physically disparate? Uh, usually you'd want to have them live in the same physical location just because you want to isolate any regional differences between them. The challenge for most people with doing blue-green deployments is that if you are standing up a whole new parallel copy of your environment, there is a cost associated with that. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. The nice thing about a cloud platform, of course, is that you can destroy that green one or the blue one after you're finished with your deployment. Mm -hmm. um, but during the deploy activities and while you're still validating it and maybe for a day afterwards, you might want to keep all the old stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so one thirtieth of the cost, though. 
So yeah, it's def- def- definitely going to be a lot cheaper than having two standalone environments sitting there twenty four seven. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we see it. We see it a lot for application deployments. Usually, it doesn't work for infrastructure changes. Right. Right. You wouldn't say our new. Yeah. We have a production blue and a production green for the infrastructure. No, mostly it's just application deliverables um, getting pushed into the environment. Uh, and the nice thing is the the deployment automation, the CD system we talked about earlier. You can point those at any destination, and as long as those destinations work the same, that system can, will just automatically work. Right. You need to send some different settings to it, but there's no additional work. The, and how does that impact things like databases? Because um, I imagine, okay, so maybe I can make a code update um, for my front-end application, which might just literally be like, I don't know, changing a CSS file or, or some really minor update which has no impact whatsoever on database schema, etc. Versus, let's say I'm doing a pretty major update to my application. I'm introducing new tables or I'm introducing new fields into my databases. You know, what, what kind of impact do you have at those different ends of the scale? Uh, and how does that work in a blue-green kind of deployment method? So database schema changes are always the biggest blocker for doing zero downtime deployments of any kind. Having them work as a blue-green. So in the blue-green methodology that I'm referring to, usually you'll find that the data tier is shared. You don't have a whole copy of all your production data in two places because that way lies a bit of madness Mm -hmm. in that which one is the real one, which Mm -hmm. where's the truth. Absolutely. So in, in, in that view, making changes to the data schema when you deploy becomes a challenge both ways. If it's blue-green, it means you need to write your application in such a way that the new version of the code works with the old version of the database <laughs> and the old version of the code still works with the new version of the database. That ideally. sounds really easy. It's very, very difficult to do, <laughs> especially if you have a bunch of legacy applications, which everyone does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you start from scratch on Greenfield View, you can probably do it pretty well. There are lots of tools on the development side to make it easier to do automated schema migrations. Yep. There's a couple things I want to point out about that. There isn't really a silver bullet, first of all, which is my main message. There's no magic to it. You have to do the work on the application layer. But also, it's not just about databases or or relational databases. It's also things like browser storage Mm -hmm. and cookies if you're serializing Mm -hmm. data. If you're serializing data anywhere in your systems, you might need to think about versioning it. Right. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. If you have uh, asynchronous queuing and messages going into queues, those messages probably have a structure. Yeah. You need to think about what happens if that structure needs to change. So you're saying version all the things, really, isn't it? Version yeah. things that have meaningful structure. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Because your code will look at it, and if it doesn't understand it, it needs to either give you a useful error message and fail gracefully, or it needs to handle it and ideally update it automatically mm-hmm. absolutely and then obviously thinking about application you talk about databases files also we need to think about the client side infrastructure uh, if you're using dns for example yeah make sure when you fail over don't depend on dns because that might take ages yeah that's another challenge around blue green deployments if you're relying on dns propagation to be your cutover event mm. it's not going to be instant and it's yeah. not going to be predictable absolutely yep. not so ideally you're doing a layer below dns yeah 
some kind of load balancer level. Mm-hmm. So you have full control. Another nice aspect of blue green, though, if you did have two parallel environments, one old, one new, this opens up a really nice approach to doing a, a sort of weighted traffic rollout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is something we see in big companies like Netflix and Facebook. They all have this approach. We're going to roll out the new version of the thing 1% at a time. Perfect. Track our error rates, see if they spike. If there is a problem, we'll roll it back. That's called a canary deployment, right? Like a canary in the coal mine. Let's take it further in the coal mine. If it dies, then we know we need better step back a little bit. (laughs) So you're saying if any of the developers die during a rollout, we should probably roll back? Yeah. We don't. I think if you're in a position where a developer life is at risk during your deployments, just call us. We'll we'll help you do that. (laughs) You've got problems worse than most people. (laughs) No, fair point. Cool. So... I think that's a good wrap up on the on the blue green side of things and uh, the CI/CD side of things. I, I kind of want to take a step back, uh, Iskander, and we, we I think we briefly when we were talking about DevOps, we mentioned automation and how kind of automation is part of the key requirement when you're doing continuous integration, continuous deployment, uh, and some aspects of it require automation. So, if you can talk a bit more into it. Automation, obviously, we've all seen the meme that says automate everything, automate all the things. All the things, yeah. All, all the things, things. <laughs> yeah. Can you actually do an automation of everything? I mean, is it, how logical would it be? Do you need, how much automation do you need to actually make the system work? I think it's important to go retrace your steps a little bit and understand why automation is valued at all in, in, in these types of systems for deployment, let's say. And usually the automation is valued because it takes out human time and effort. Human time and effort is really expensive for any business. Mm -hmm. So let's try and reduce how much we spend, right? Um, So the question that that leads us to is the goal actually is to remove human time and effort from our processes. Replacing humans with automation makes sense. But another thing that makes sense is taking out some steps as well and streamlining the process. True. So the idea is, is making it lean. So to go back to your question about automating all the things, well, all the things that make sense <laughs> to automate is correct. If you can say with confidence, this work I'm doing can be done by a script right? because it's clearly defined because you've got a bunch of steps which don't necessarily change or that can be quantified in a, in a program, mm. like some code, then absolutely 100% automate it. If it's subjective testing, if it's like QA is a great example, if it's... Um, sort of exploratory testing, Yep. right? You can do some amount of automation with test fuzzing, but the truth is you want an experienced human running that piece mm. and saying, hang on a minute, this looks a bit wrong. Let me go in and find more until we have machine learning that can do it for us, of course. So something with consistent inputs is absolutely, or consistent prerequisites are absolutely critical. Sure. Um, e- even if they're within a range. Mm. Um, yeah, another nice, nice way to think about it is Humans are really good at doing creative problem solving. We're really good at thinking a little bit non-linearly and out of the box. Mm-hmm. We're quite bad at doing the same repetitive tasks over and over and over again, right? Yep. We shouldn't do that. That's not really where our value is as humans. Our value is we've got, we've got minds and creativity. Let's take the, the computing infrastructure, let's take technology and leverage that to do all of our repetitive, boring tasks. So as much as makes sense should be automated. Not everything will be. Another really good aspect to the whole idea of automating things is that it will force you to write down all your manual steps. 
Right. Often these are not written down. Someone's job is to deploy the application, <laughs> and they happen to know the process in their heads. And as it changes over time, they adjust their memories, and it's not written down everywhere. Yeah. Just the idea of, hang on a minute, someday we're going to automate this. What's the first step? That's right. Write down the manual steps. And that's already progress. Yep. Now you can share the work, workload out. Now you can keep track of changes. And you're safe from hit by a bus syndrome as well. I, exactly, yeah, or the lottery syndrome, I like to call it. Uh, okay. Yeah, oh. you're just more positive. If we try to be positive. <laughs> yeah. If you if you win the lottery and decide to buy an island and not come into work on Monday, what happens to our deployment process? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do we need to reinvent it, or can someone pick up the docs and the steps and run it themselves, or can someone pick up the automation source code and run it too? So, in the case of when I was starting my career uh, and we were deploying servers. Um, that was literally pick up the crossover cable that was 100 foot long mm-hmm. and walk across the data center <laughs> and plug it in at the other end, which to your point about useful use of human creative time, I'm not sure that, that was brilliant use of time. Definitely not. <laughs> I think we need to get to a human future where we're creative individuals. Technically, I think technology is inherently a creative activity. True. Infrastructure as code is going to help us with that. Yeah, Software defined everything. A lot. So yeah, automation. Yes, automate all the things. That Perfect. makes sense. Don't do it for the sake of it. Don't do it for the sake of it. Now, if you think about automation and DevOps, we talked about how automation helps in the DevOps cycle. How mu- Can you still get away with minimum automation in the DevOps cycle? Minimum viable automation. Minimum viable automation. There you go. Can you get how away with it? How dependent it is, is it? Like if, if I say, let's say if I have a system which, which cannot be automated. A lot of things cannot be automated. Deployment, for example, if it requires manual intervention. Can I actually get away with it, or do I? Am I still stuck with the old method of deployment, old method of DevOps? I think you can use automation as a tactical approach to, to dealing with individual problem areas. There's mm-hmm. there's no reason you need to go in and say top down automation. Everything has to be fit into the structure. True. No, find the boring task or the repetitive I thing. Write some code to do it for your, for yourself. Yep. Put it into revision control. Share it with your colleagues. Guess what? You're now doing infrastructure as code. You're now doing automation. Perfect. Usually, there's always manual steps in a deployment uh, into production, into, into a continuous delivery into production. Usually, the manual step is a human gatekeeper who maybe has a QA hat on. They're signing off. This release is ready to go. But what they do when they sign off is they press a button. True. Which triggers the rest of the automation. <laughs> right? Cool. I mean, the, yeah, absolutely. That makes complete sense. Because... Thinking about a lot of our customers that I have been talking to, they come from a background where there's legacy applications, but you can't really, I mean, it's everything's not Greenfield. So the question always comes in saying, hey, I've got this legacy app. I can't really do continuous deployment. I can't really do everything mm. that you tell me, but can I still use DevOps? So, what's, so what's the value there? And if there is, the, the, I guess for me, the question would be, do you see value in taking away wasted time on things that don't contain value for you as a business and getting rid of those, even if that's not the entire process, even if it's just parts of it. If you as an individual spend two days um, creating some automation that saves you a day a month, okay, well, immediately after three months, you've already made that time back and it's worthwhile. Um, So I think that applies to almost any situation, whether it be development, deployment, et cetera. I'd I'd posit that that cost-benefit analysis you've just made on human time is valid, but there's additional value in having it automated in that you're less likely to make a mistake. Absolutely. And that goes back to our original point earlier on about Mm -hmm. shift left. Yeah, so not only are you recovering the human time, so on paper, your numbers make make sense and the investment is good. Actually, you're getting way more than that too. 
Awesome. Well, that's been a really interesting session, Iskander. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, so we've we've kind of deep dived into a couple of specific areas around the you know DevOps culture, DevOps uh, concepts, and language. Um, we actually did have a webinar that we recorded a couple of months ago, which goes into uh, more of the process. So it's kind of more of a, a high level overview of all the different elements and how they bind together. Um, if you want to catch that, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. It's uh, it's a nice, easy to consume 25 minutes of your lunch kind of a length of uh, a webinar. Uh, and that's with the scanner again. Um, we also, just a quick reminder again, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do so at Spotting Clouds. Uh, you may have heard some funny squeaking noises earlier on. That was our, uh, our producer, very kindly, Carolina, writing on the board with the squeakiest pen in the world so that may be picked up later <laughs> i thought she was actually tweeting <laughs> quite literally yeah quite literally um so speaking of which um if you want to as i say follow us on twitter that'd be awesome at spotting clouds uh you can visit us at the website go.rackspace.com slash cloud spotting um and give us a review on itunes or stitcher yep. it helps us to build our listener base and hopefully get out to more people in the community um share the knowledge uh, and otherwise we will see See you on the next episode. Absolutely. Let us know your uh, thoughts and your feedback. And if you're interested in hearing something specific, let us know. We'll try and cater it in. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks Iskander. Thanks. Thanks.